Good morning, going through the book of the gospel of John. Christology, that's what John speaks of. John is shining forth that Jesus Christ is deity, that he is God. And that's what we've been looking at. We're in the chapter 6 of the book of John. You know, I've got to brag a little on the men's breakfast because we always have a great men's breakfast. I don't know what prompted Pastor Jonathan to talk about lamenting. Who would ever want to speak on lamenting? But that was the topic. He sparked that conversation, and it was a great conversation because he began to speak about Habakkuk, how he lamented to God. God, why are you letting the Babylonians, why are you letting the Assyrians come down and judge us? And he spoke of Jeremiah and David, how he would cry out against his enemies. And the point of our conversation is, why don't we lament more corporately? Well, we never found the right answer for that. We just skipped over that. We came up with suggestions why. But then some wise person said, you know what? Because of all of the ministries we have here and all of the times that not, of course, during church, but also outside of church, we get to pour in one another's life and we get to share issues and problems. And we, by that, we lament and share our burdens with one another. So it does happen corporately. But I was just so blessed by that time of our conversation. Uh, men's breakfast is always great. But back to the book of John. And I wish we would have had the caps. I would have liked to have worn one also. John chapter 6, verse 1. We, Jesus has finished in the fifth chapter Doing, uh, doing the miracles at the pool of Bethesda, the nobleman's son, and then he begins a discourse on why I have not annulled the Sabbath, why I am greater, Jesus Christ, greater than the Sabbath. These are the reasons, because I can raise the dead, because I'm the one who's going to give judgment. I do all of these things because the Father has given me the ability and the grace to do these things. I and the Father, we are one. And I only do what I see the Father do. The Father says, hey, tell this uh, infirm man to pick up his bed, rise up and walk. God, knowing that he would pick up his mat and do that on the Sabbath day, Jesus is saying nothing's wrong with it. So it says in chapter 1 of verse 6, after these things, and most naturally, we look back to the pool of Bethesda. But some say chapter 5 originally is supposed to come between chapters 6 and 7. And if that's so, I'm not going to debate that issue. He goes back until the nobleman's son of chapter 4. Jesus at this time, he's on the west side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed over. The Sea of Galilee is also called in numbers and a couple more places, Lake Chenaroth. And the reason it's called Lake Chenaroth is it looks like a, a lyre, an instrument. 
And so that's where they got the name of Lake Chinneroff from. But now it's known as Lake Tiberias from the city which Herod Antipas founded on its west shore around AD 20. It was built for the emperor Tiberius at this time. Uh, Really, the name is not given there until about 20 years later. So he says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him. I guess that works. That's okay to follow Jesus if we're following Jesus for the right reasons. That's the question. That's what Jesus is about to begin to uh, slice down the crowd a little. He says, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceased. This is John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Besides the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in all four gospels, only this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is also in the four gospels. Not the feeding of the 4,000. That's not in all of them. But this feeding of the 5,000 is So God puts this up front and center. There must be a lesson why he would put this in all four Gospels. John is stressing that Jesus is not merely a new Moses providing a sample of new manna, but he's saying that Jesus is God's manna. He wants everyone to know that. He's come from heaven for the greatest reason that anyone could ever come to give life to dead men and women. So Jesus tells them, you're following me, not because you understood the sign. And remember, John gives seven signs that points to Jesus Christ being deity. This is just one of the many signs that Jesus does. He says, but you follow me because you ate the bread. And so this leads to this discourse that we're about to look at some of it. We'll flip back with Mark because Mark was written first. Mark gives us a little more details on what's going on here. So Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 32 says this. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. They had been out ministering. By this time, John the Baptist's head has been chopped off. All of these. So they're upset about all of these things. And Jesus says, come aside for a while. Come rest for a while. Warren Wearsby tells us this. Either we will come aside or we will come apart. It's good to rest. It's good to just kick back from the world and everything that's going on and While we're resting, surely we know we should be meditating on the things of God. He says, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They were busy. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. The Sea of Galilee, about 15 miles long, about seven and a half miles wide, And they tell me, I've never been to Israel, but they tell me on a clear day, you can see the entire lake. Beautiful place. Jesus 
begins to, he's already on the uh, western side. People see him. He tells the disciples to come aside. And as they begin to go to the other side, people can see him and his disciples on the boat. And I know because if I want to get somewhere before anyone else, the crowd gets there. First, I'll start walking kind of slowly, hoping no one sees my movement. But they begin to see his movement. And then he picks up a pace. And the other people begin to pick up their pace. And so all of a sudden, this huge crowd is running to the other side of the lake to see Jesus there. He gets there. He has an entire sanctuary full of people. We would hope, we would pray that they're wanting to hear the gospel. The disciples, not being Jesus, says, Lord, send them away. We're tired. But Jesus has a lesson for them to learn. And that's why he doesn't send them away. He has a lesson for his disciples to learn. Inconvenience, I say it all the time, is the enemy of ministry. Inconvenience is the enemy of ministry. Send them away, they said. I have a job to do. Send them away. I have an activity that's pressing, that's more important. Send them away. I have a date night. Nothing can interrupt that. We're going to find out that Jesus says, yes, seek me first, and I can handle the date night. I'll get all those things straightened out. Things are pressing. He says in verse 3, and Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, he's informing the early church what this was. He says was near. So this tells us that a year has at least passed because in chapter 2, we heard of the first Passover. So a year has just passed. We know it's spring. The multitudes are coming from Galilee, headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they have a certain mindset. They're thinking about. I believe the people are thinking about Moses and that uh, Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, the wilderness wandering, and the manna, because they long for a new Moses. They long for someone to set them free from Roman oppression. That's all they're thinking of. The in general. Jesus has come for another reason. He says in verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a multitude coming toward him. Remember when he was in Samaria, the, the, the lady has just gone at the well to bring this huge crowd back. And the Bible says Jesus lifted up his eyes. Remember what he said? The field, the fields are white for harvest. He knew what they were coming from for. This crowd, he doesn't say that. He knows what they're coming for. They're coming to be fed. We just want you to feed us, Lord, or we want you to be king, Lord. But we don't, we don't think being saved from our sins is a big deal. 
He says, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, probably because Philip was from Bethesda, that was his neighborhood, he asked Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, parazzo, the Greek for test. And it has a a wide range of meaning that includes it can be used positively or negatively. Jesus will use it positively here. Satan tempted Jesus Christ a lot during his life down here. The tempter is called by Matthew the parazon. He's the tempter. But here, James, we will see James use it for the trying of our faith, which is good. It's good to be tested. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, and then we'll look at verse 12. He says this, my brethren, count it all joy. I haven't been able to do that completely well yet. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There's the word. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why God in his sovereignty knows how to put us in these positions that the believer will grow stronger and stronger when that muscle of faith is exercised more. Then he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved a dacamos, a a marketplace term. I buy buy a, a quarter, a little of lamb and I put the weights on the scale until it balances out. My walk Matches my talk. That's what he means here. When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We have to understand Philip hasn't read the chapter yet. And Jesus is putting them in this impossible position in regards to their resources because they don't have anything. Hey, Philip, what are, you, what are we going to do with this huge crowd that's coming our way? We know that Judas held the money bag, and it seems that Philip may have been the accountant because he quickly begins to start counting and adding up how this thing will work out. It says, for he himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, knew what he would do. He's always ahead of us. He always understands when we're in a trial exactly how he's going to come through. Philip answered him. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. If you've ever watched the Beverly Hillbillies, and I'm dating myself, but I don't care, it was a character on there called Jethro. And and when he would add, they, they would always say he's ciphering. So that's what Philip is doing. He's ciphering these numbers. He's adding up these numbers right away. He says, eight month wages, Jesus. It's not enough. That's exactly the way we are. We right away begin to form a committee or a board and try to flesh the answer out. That's exactly what Philip is doing. And when we do that, we usually come up with the wrong answer. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that there's no amount of human reasoning is going to figure this matter out. He knows this. He asked Philip, what are you going to do? What are we going to do about this? Philip 
should have said, Lord, I, I don't know. That would have taken humility. Lord, I don't know, but I know you know. By this time, Jesus Christ, if we count the miracles, he's performed five miracles, a few were signs, Philip being there at most, if not all of them, should have quickly said, with the other five, they should have quickly said, we don't know, but we're not worried because I know you can handle it, Jesus. But they go to human resources, already knowing that Jesus would do the right thing. Paul puts it this way when he writes to the church of Galatia, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul is kind of upset. He doesn't even give a really his usual, normal welcome when he writes. He gets straight to the point. He says this, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Jesus had called Philip, remember, personally to follow him. And by faith, Philip follows him. Colossians also tells us, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him, you received him by faith, so walk in him by faith. Uh, increase that faith. How? Paul says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. So Jesus is asking this question really to all of the disciples, that they may learn to trust him, even more to learn to trust him in dire, extraordinary circumstances. When everything has gone sideways, the Lord is wanting us to trust him, to not worry about the resources we have, because Jesus Christ has an unlimited amount of resources that can handle any issue we may face on this earth. Philip says 200 denarii worth of bread is not for sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew Simon's Peter brother, said to him, seems as if he's coming to Philip's aid. There is a lad. I think this lad is around seven or eight years old. And the reason I think that, once you get to 10, 9, 10 on up, if your mom has fixed you a meal and there's a multitude of people, you're not wanting to share. You're not going to share that meal. So this little guy, he's not even worried about it. He's oblivious to what's going on. He wants to share. It says, there is a lad, Andrew says, here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. And then he says, but what are they among so many? That's our resources, by the way. We don't bring much to the table. Five loaves of bread, five little muffins, five slices of bread, and two sardines. That's all we have when we bring it to the table to the Lord. I don't care how gifted you may be in different things. When we serve the Lord, this is what we add to the equation. Not much. 
Paul tells us not to be high-minded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, he says this, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Chew on that. Now, if you did, re- did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know, this little lad, this little boy, his mom probably fixed him a little meal as he goes out the door, not knowing. He says, she says, go brush your teeth, go outside, here's your lunch, and go play. And during that time, he sees this huge crowd. And he begins to go with this crowd. And being a little child, you know, they don't care. They are pushed their way right to the front as Jesus is healing, as Jesus is teaching, as he's healing. This is a different kind of man that he's ever met. And all of this is going on. And he says in verse 10, then Jesus said with this little mill that this little boy has. Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000, remember, women and children. And Jesus took the loaves. I believe he received the loaves and the two fish from this little boy. Give them here, I'll take them. And it says, and when he had given thanks, I can see the picture, knowing Jesus, Knowing his heart, he probably winked at the little boy and said, your mom is right. Always say grace before you eat. And when he had given thanks, blessed are you king of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. He says he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. In all four Gospels together, it seems that if the miracle happened as the great king was breaking the bread, can you imagine? And the fish breaking it. It's multiplying. I believe the disciples are around him seeing this miracle as he continues to break. Donald Gray Barnhouse says he thinks... And I love Barnhouse, but I don't agree with him here. It's just his opinion. He thinks that the Lord lined up 12 baskets, broke the fish and the, and the loaves, and placed them in the buckets. And as the disciples were carrying them, they were multiplying when they got there. Either way, this is a stupendous miracle, a great miracle, because he's learning, he's teaching his disciples something. It says, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Can you imagine nine, 10,000 people getting seconds, getting thirds? It's like, I don't even know if uh, Golden Corral is open anymore since COVID. I don't know. But when it was open and before COVID, oh man, that was my place to go eat. I'd get in there and just eat and eat and eat. And, oh, Lord, why would you let me eat so much? 
That's what's happening here. They're being fed. The grass is around them, green, lush grass because it's Passover season. And they're just eating and they're just being glut. Matter of fact, that's what the word means. Verse 12 tells us this. So when they were filled, that's our word for glutton, impimplame, to glut one desire. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Recall the manna in the wilderness. Remember, it wasn't supposed to be any leftovers. God gave them enough for that day. And then for, for uh, the Sabbath, he would give them enough for that Saturday also. But Jesus is saying, no, it's necessary for me to give you exactly what you need here. All that's going on, they're thinking in their minds, this is the new Moses. This is the guy we've been looking for to set us free from Roman occupation. Verse 13 tells us, therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12, and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Take note. Every disciple had a wicker basket, a kafinos basket full, but Jesus didn't have one. Remember what his meat was? Remember what his food was? To do the master's will. That's why he didn't have one, but all the rest, they had one to remind them that they cannot, in their own resources, do anything. You need me. You know, there are needs around all of us. So many needs here at the church, so many needs in life, all those things. But how shall we feed these? That's the question. We might say, maybe I can serve on Sunday in the children ministry. Maybe I can go outside I saw one brother this morning picking up trash, and I, I was just amazed that he would do that, an older man, but he has a, had a bag, and he was picking up trash around the building. How can I serve so many? We do it little by little. If we would just do something, the Lord will bless it, I believe. With a clear heart and a clear conscience, we serve the Lord no matter if it's an hour, a week, go to a nursing home. Whatever it is, if we give that to the Lord, he will make the increase. But we have to do something like the lad with the five loaves and the two fish here. That's what Jesus is wanting them to learn. We can only, we are not manufacturers, we are distributors. Jesus Christ is the source of life. We get our life from him. But he wants us from the life we receive from him is to shine that life to others. Are we doing that? Are we ministering? Are we serving others with the life that comes down from Jesus Christ? In what capacity are we doing those things? Are, are we so selfish, worrying about ourselves like the Dead Sea that we never give out to others, so concerned about ourselves. Jesus says, no, 
I'm going to supply all your needs according to my riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So you just go out and I will give you everything you need. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Paul puts it this way. You are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. When we leave to go to work, when we leave to go to school, whatever we do, believe it. If they know you are believers, we are that living epistle. Are we doing the things the Lord has called us to do? No matter how small, no matter how big, no matter how insignificant you may think it is. Are you doing something for the Lord? Because he will multiply it. Our problem is we don't do that something. We make excuses why we can't do anything for the Lord. A God who has saved us, a God who has called us, a God who has given us grace to come to him, and then for us to sit down and never serve him. That's terrible. It shouldn't be. That's what he's teaching his disciples here. When they said, send them away, we're tired. He says, no, serve. And then your rest will even be sweeter when you finish ministering. He says in verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And now that's the crowds that are saying these things. Oh man, here he is. He's going to feed us manna every day as if Moses fed them manna every day. No, he didn't. It was God who's doing it. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So the multitudes say, This is the one we've been looking for. It reminds me of what happens in the United States every four years. This is the one we've been looking for, y'all. He's going to rescue us from our taxes. He's going to change the health care system. He's going to straighten out our economy. This is the one we're looking for instead of. Looking for the then. That's what the believer should look for. Not the here and now, but the then. We're pilgrims, Hebrews tells us. We're sojourners. That's the mindset every believer should have. I've been bombed out. I've been bombed out about this Russian invasion. I've been praying to the Lord, Lord, stop this, slaughtering people. Mostly I've been, I don't know how to balance it. I say, Lord, I'm praying for the the believers in Ukraine and I can pray pray for the believers in Russia. And then I said, well, I guess I should be praying for the unbelievers. They're dying. (laughs) They're the one hell is waiting for them. But it just breaks my heart. And then as we were talking We know this is going to happen. We know this is coming. We know this world is not going to get any better. 
So it's important how we live as Christians. We should carve out time to tell a lost and dying world about the Savior of all men, Jesus Christ, and live holy lives. No one is going to straighten this mess out. Should we try? Should we vote on the best candidate, Whatever, whoever that is? Yes. But we need to understand that God is on the throne. It speaks to us how this thing is going to end. And we need to be out there, as the hymn would say, rescue the perishing. This ship is going down. Let me tell you about the Savior of all men, Jesus Christ. That's what we should be doing. But they're here. This multitude is looking for a bread king. That's what they're looking for. Someone who will satiate all of their physical needs, all of their physical desires here and now. That's all they can see. And that's what Jesus is going to let them know. You're you're looking for temporal things. You're looking for things that might help you out at the moment. But what about when you leave this planet? And so he begins to give this long discourse that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. That it's Jesus Christ. He's come down here to solve a sin problem that every person has. We've sinned against the holy God. And like I always tell you guys, if it was just living for 70 years or 60 years or 90 years and die, and that's the end of life, I was foolish enough to say, hey, I might might do that. But it doesn't work like that. We will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. That's no myth. That's no fable, thus saith the Lord. That's why God the Father would send his son, God the Son, down here to to die on the cross for our sins, that we may have eternal life, and that he can feed us spiritual food and send forth the Holy Spirit into our hearts that we cry out, Abba, Father, no matter what's going on, I'm at peace. Because I know where I'm going to spend eternity at. He gives forgiveness. And that's what he wants them to see here. He says in verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, they want a warrior king, they want a military leader. They saw Moses as that. When he, it wasn't Moses that did it, but God set them free from Egypt. And that's what they're wanting to be set free from now, Roman oppression. It says he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. He disperses the crowd. He tells the disciples. Matter of fact, Mark tells us he makes them, he constrains them, Jesus Christ, to get in the boat. They're not wanting to leave him, but he makes them, he forces them to get in the boat. It says in verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. So in obedience, they're doing what the Lord has told them. Got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. By that statement, 
Jesus must have told them, I'll catch up with you. I'll see you in a minute. Verse 18, all of a sudden, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Those who study these things, they said the Sea of Galilee was known for violent storms at times. They would pop up in a moment. In a moment, everything would be calm. And then in the next moment, you're in a violent storm. That should remind us of life. Everything is going good one day. And the next day, your dad has pancreatic cancer. One thing is going good, and then the next day, your brother has passed away. We all know about these things, those violent storms that seem as if they never end. We need Jesus. They also say that even today on the Sea of Galilee, if you have a motorboat and you see a violent storm is there, they don't even go out on motorboats. That's how violent these storms are. And these boys are about to paddle across this seven and a half mile sea. He says, so when they had rowed three or four miles, that's about halfway across, Matthew tells us on the fourth watch, around 3 to 6 p.m., they've been rowing between eight to nine hours. Pastor Brown, imagine that. Every once in a while, I'll go to the gym. You know that. And every once in a while, I'll get in that little rowing thing. 30 seconds. I've did my day's limit. Can you imagine eight to nine hours? And you've only gone three and a half miles. Blisters on the hand, bloodied hands, quads hurting, biceps hurting. And there they are trying to get across. That's what's happening here. The Bible says the wind was contrary to them. The wind was in their face. They probably take down the sail or two that they had, and they're rowing. Jesus had told them to go. This is an amazing scene that we're looking at because Jesus is about three and a half miles away, and he's looking I'm guessing it's overcast clouds. I'm guessing uh, getting, being close to Passover, there's a full moon if you could see it every once in a while. But there's a storm. It's dark. There's no street lights. But Jesus is not only watching. Thank God. Thank Jesus. He's praying for them. Storms hit us. And this is not a storm of correction, like we know Jonah's storm was. Lord tells him to go Nineveh. He goes the opposite way, and he gets caught up in a storm of correction. But this is a storm of instruction. Trust me. You haven't did anything wrong. You're walking pretty well. But God is wanting to strengthen and grow your faith. That's what he's doing here. Because when I tell you, when storms hit my life, the first thing I say, Lord, what what have I done? And I start thinking about a week. Did I say something cross to my wife? Did I say something smart, eloquently? What did I do? No, 
It's a storm of instruction. It's a storm of faith. I'm trying to get you somewhere you're not at yet. I'm trying to get you to understand who I am. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so they're out there. You know, you can have that, once again, that bread king. And we have many of bread kings, preachers today. Health, wealth, and wise. If you just follow the Lord, you'll be healthy. You'll, you'll prosper. You'll never get sick. And if you do, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. I'm here to tell you it doesn't work like that. I can't find that in the scriptures anywhere. It always comes back to me in Philippians. God has granted us to believe on him that the Father has sent and to suffer for him. That's what the scriptures say. How many times last week, this is what I want you to understand, did we suffer for him? God is so good, he tells us, I want you to suffer for me. But if I even look back at my life, I haven't did that much suffering. God is good, but he's saying that's the qualification. Don't go for the old okie-dokie that when you become uh, uh, into the, the faith, that everything's going to be well, that you're going to prosper in the here and now and all those things. No, it doesn't work like that. Why did I give my life to Jesus Christ? Why did you give your life to Jesus Christ? We were sinners. We are still sinners, but we cast all our cares upon him. Lord, save me. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I've sinned against you. And I put my trust in the God man who's never sinned in word, thought, or deed. That's what he's wanting these guys to know here. Jesus is praying for them. Even though he hasn't gotten there yet, he's looking at them and he's praying for them. Hebrews tells us this in chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. For indeed... He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's us. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted also. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I can be honest with you, I don't like this course right here. I'm a P.E. type of guy. Give me P.E., not calculus. (laughs) I don't like this course. I know it's written here. I know it's for all and every believer. But I'd rather someone else to experience it and I learn from it. And if you're honest, we're all like that. But this is a mandatory course here. We have to do the lab work here. We all have to experience these types of things so that our faith can grow. John has been speaking from chapter 1, well, really from chapter 2, that sign faith is not enough. Here's a miracle. Here's a sign that can get you moving toward the Lord. But somewhere down the line, there has to be a transfer that I've given my life to the Lord. Uh, Joe Foch puts it this way. The reason 
miracles, and I think I've had a couple of miracles in my life, when that miracle, when it happens then and there that day, oh, you're blown away for a couple of months or three. But the more time goes past, there's not a file to put that miracle in. And it diminishes size-wise. And then after 10, 15 years, oh, maybe it wasn't that big. That's what's happening here. They've eaten. They've gluttoned themselves. They want a bread king. And Jesus Christ says, by now, you guys should take me for who I am. I've come to rescue you from your sins. That's what he's going to tell his disciples here. Now, we have to give them credit, the disciples. Eight or nine hours on the Sea of Galilee. If I would have been one of them, I probably would have said, hey, what about this? What about turning the boat around, putting the sail up, and going back to the other side where Jesus was? I mean, I would have thought like that. They don't, so we have to give them credit. They continue to row. Back is hurting. Everything is hurting. He says in the latter part of verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid, rowing rowing. I can see Peter looking back and says, John, did you see something? Man, just keep rowing. And all of a sudden, they see someone strolling on the sea. Mark said they cried out, it's a ghost, phantasma, a phantom, a water phantom. Someone has died and has come back as a ghost, and he's on the sea with them. He also says, And what blows my mind, Mark says, he would have passed them by. Now, I struggled with that one all week long. I kept digging. I kept looking, all of these things. And then Amos, because of all of the prophets, all of the the disciples, All of the believers in the Bible, I think who I am the most like is Amos. Because I'm just going to tell it like it is, and, you know, I'm sorry if I offend you. But I go to the book of Amos, and this is what it says. The disciples, their point is he would have passed them by. They're not saying, no, I think he would have passed them by. He's not saying that. Amos chapter 7 verse 8 says this, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'm going to divide them. Why? I will not pass by them anymore. I will not reveal myself. I will not show myself to them anymore. So this is what he's saying. So when Mark says he would have passed them by, He doesn't mean Jesus is going to bypass them and continue to go. He's speaking of that Old Testament theophany or Christophany. I'm going to, when I pass by you, once again, and the reason I say once again, he's been revealing himself to him since chapter 2. I'm going to reveal myself to you to tell you and show you again who I am. Remember when God told Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. And then he says, I will make all my goodness. Lord, You say you know me, but I don't know you. Show me your glory. He says, Moses, I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover 
you in that cleft. I will cover you with my hands, my hinder parts. And then he says this, I will pass by you. I will reveal myself to you. He told Elijah when he had ran from Jezebel, weary and tired and ready to give up. Elijah, go to the mount and I will pass by you. I will reveal myself to you. That's what Mark means. He's going to come and he's going to reveal himself to them in this storm. He says in verse 20, and he does that once again. But he said to them, Jesus, it is I. Do not be afraid. The ego it may. I am. Is he close enough? He had to be close enough for them to hear him. Do not be afraid. I am. Remember, in Matthew's account, and we know Matthew is a tax collector, so he's really freaking out because he's not a fisherman. All of this stuff, the storm, all these things are happening. And then Matthew tells us, Peter, always rambunctious and at the wrong time. Peter says this, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I bet every one of them looked at him like, are you stupid? Why would you say something like that? I told you from the beginning, there were two feedings. There were two storms, storm 101, storm 102. They've already been through storm 101. That was tough, but not as tough as storm 102. Because remember, storm 101, who was with them on the boat? Jesus. It should be a little easier when he's on the boat with you. So he's on the boat. The storm comes. They go wake him up. Lord, don't you care that we perish? Remember, he stands up and he rebukes the sea and the waves. And they say, what manner of man are you, Mark tells us, that even the wind and the waves obey him? God is not finished. He's advancing them. He's strengthening their faith. So here comes storm 102. He's not there, but he's told them to go to the other side. And as he's going, here comes the storm. Jesus finally gets there, Matthew tells us, and when he got into the boat, the wind ceased that quickly. Once again, they're fighting the waves, they're fighting the wind, and here comes Jesus, and Peter says, Lord, bid me to come to you in the storm. I'm here to tell you, the safest place we can be when the storms of life hits us is with Jesus. If it's a storm or if it's a clear, beautiful day and Jesus is not there, which one should we rather be? In the storm with Jesus. That's the safest, that's the most securest place we can be. Ask the big three about that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even when they were in the fiery furnace, when the Lord showed up, remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? How many did we throw in? It looks like four is in there, and one looks like the Son of Man, and they were walking around, and they could have went out any time they wanted to, but they didn't. He had to call them out because the safest and securest place was with the Lord. That's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. It says in verse 21, then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land 
where they were going. Imagine that. Don't look over that. They've gone three and a half miles. Jesus enters the boat. Once he enters the boat, the bow crashes against the shore. That's quick. That's in a twinkling of an eye. We will get to experience that. That quick. Hands bloodied, blistered, tired. That quick. The boat reaches the shore because they're with Jesus. Mark puts it this way. Truly, you are the son of God. But then he gives us a hint. He says in Mark chapter 6, verse 51 through 52, then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Here it is. Here's the rebuke for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. He rebukes them by this time. Once again, you should understand who I am. You should have moved from seeing these signs into whether you see me or not to trust me. I'm reminded of a, a girl. She's, uh, I taught her in, in youth group. But when she called me, she was about 17, 18 years of age. She said, Pastor Victor, I used to read my word and the Lord would speak to me and uh, I would pray and do all these things. And I'm still doing those things. But the Lord, he doesn't speak to me like he used to. And I said, you know what he's doing? He's growing your faith. We have to go through those things. Whether we feel them, and this is not a feel-good, for lack of a better word, religion. This is about a relationship. This is about a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's teaching us to walk by faith and not by sight. That's why he gives the rebuke here. They're astonished. They're amazed. Verse 22 says this, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there were no boat there, except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, I love what he tells them. Amen, amen. I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. We don't have time. To meander around our loved ones that are not saved. We don't have time to beat around the bush about Jesus Christ. Have you tried Jesus? We don't have time. You see how Jesus cuts to the point, cuts to the chase right here? I know why you're following me. You need eternal life. Your number is going to be called one day. And like I said, when that person that you love and that you never got around to truly sharing the gospel, if they open their eyes in hell, 
I guarantee you they will be saying, you should have told me about Jesus every day, every chance you got. So what if I got mad? So what if I got upset? So what if I never spoke to you again? You should have told me. And I hear people say all of the time, well, I just don't want, I I enjoy a relationship with this person. So I really don't want to share the gospel because they'll probably stop talking to me. Pray, but share the gospel and speak the truth. That's what Jesus says right here. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled, and then he tells them, do not labor. In fact, stop laboring for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. When the Spirit came on him like a dove at the Jordan, when he said on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Jesus says, stop laboring for that which is temporary. We're quick to do that, with which only can fill our physical hunger or thirst, that which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. And he's not speaking of salvation here. That's a gift. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not saying labor to be saved, but he's saying give your time. 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 And attention to those things that are relative to eternity. I'm amazed. If you know anything about me, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, I'm watching Fox News. Kick back. And I've heard twice now, I've heard Tucker Carlson say, you know, I don't watch TV. I read books here and there, but most of the time I'm focused on what's going on in the world and I get all my data and all that stuff. He says, so I never watch TV. I heard a football coach tell, say, he says for 20, if it's a lie, he told it. He said for 20 hours out of the day, I'm breaking down film. And every time I hear people say that, I turn it back to my life. They're committed to football. They're committed to news. Committed. How much time do I spend in the word and in prayer, not being legalistic, not at all, but growing that relationship with Jesus Christ? Seeking things that are eternal. That's what he's saying here. Now, uh, most of these, this crowd, they're unbelievers. But we're believers, and he's telling his disciples, don't run after things that will perish. Think if you had put stock in the ruble. <laughs> You've been in bad shape. <laughs> even Bitcoin, even silver or gold. Those things perish. They add nothing to everlasting life. That's what Jesus is saying. How much time, it's not about salvation. You're saying, how much time are you spending on doing the things of the Lord? That's what he's saying here. Get mad, get upset. I'm just telling what he's saying. That's what he's saying to Victor Allen Summerhour. I don't want Tucker Carlson, I forget the coach's name, 
I don't want him to outdo me. I don't want Mark Phelps to outdo me spending, swimming all the time, getting ready for the Olympics. When he was in the Olympics two times. And I can't spend 30 minutes in the word, sharing my faith, praying when no one sees it for a lost and dying world. Jesus Christ is no bread king. Yes, he did tell us. I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken and we see it shaking now. How much faith do you have? Or are we running busy about things that don't matter? That's what the scripture is saying here this morning. That's why he's a little upset. What is 70 years? I have not made it there yet. I'm getting close. But what is 70 years in light of eternity? And I look back at my life and I said, I spent too much time here, too much time there, when I should have been spending time serving you more, Lord. This is not a guilt trip. This is thus saith the Lord. It's important. A guy said this, the problem is that the pressing things in life are rarely important and the important things are rarely pressing. The things that are pressing, house needs this done, the car needs this done, all those things, education, have to do that. Those things are pressing, but they're not really important. They are pressing, but they're really not important because education is not going to save you. All those other things are not going to, and they're good to have. But put your priorities in order. That's what Jesus Christ is saying here. Seek me first. Put me first. Spend time with me first. I will take care of the rest. That's all I'm saying. But do we do that, Victor? That's what he's saying here. How much time do we spend, and the worship team can come up, in prayer with the Lord, just sitting back and say, Lord, I'm not going to say a word. Just speak to me. Where Paul gives that beautiful prayer, he does it in Ephesians and he gives it in Colossians. But he begins to talk about the height and the breadth and the width and the length of the love of Christ. If we just understood those things, you'll never understand those things in the word. Mark my word. The the only way you you learn those things and understand those things, you sit with him and say, Lord, speak to me. Reveal yourself to me. I don't care about anything else. Just reveal yourself to me. And then he'll begin to speak to you. That's what he's saying here. Jesus will go on this long discourse about why are you seeking me? I've come to give you salvation and nothing else should matter. Trust me. Trust me. Give me your life. And I'll make sure even here, When things aren't going the way you think they should, you will find yourself having abundant life and abundant joy because I know 
whom I believe and in whom I have entrusted my life to, and he gives me life eternal. Let's pray. Father, you are God. Lord, we are prone to wonder. Uh, uh, We are prone to put you in a pecking order that you're not first. We may say you are first, but we live a different life. Lord, I pray that everyone here would examine themselves. Not saying that they're not in the faith, I'm not talking about that, but examine the things we touch and do that's just temporary and the things that truly matters to you. Lord, those are the things Jesus is speaking of about going after. I'm here to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. I'm here to give you life and give it to you eternally. But I have a road that I want you to walk down to, that you can be the best that you can be because you're walking where I want you to be at. Lord, I pray that we would understand that and surrender every part of our lives to you. That we would be everything that you've called us to be, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us to do those things. You've given your life for us. We should surrender everything to you. Give us grace to do that. And I pray all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Let's stand and close with a song, please.